0: It, it, you have to have some idea. You know, you know it's not simple stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Hell, blue jeans. Nice. We've got about. I mean, we've had about equal attendance both events. So we've got actually um, eight people online right now. If if, if people are joining, they mute their video. You can't see them, but they're still there. Yeah. They That's so. my All right. So let's. Um, and also, everyone should know that um, this is recorded, yeah. so that you can go on our website and listen to this class. Um, and not that you want a double dose, or right? <laughs> like that, like going, "Enough of this." But there, it is there. So. Well, I'm leaving. Yeah. All right, let us pray. Blessed Lord is God, Holy Scripture, for our learning. Grant may in may wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of Thy Holy Spirit, we may embrace, never fast, the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are, uh, okay. did, did anyone not get the email? It? You might not be in our list yet. Okay, if because we, we get your email, put you on that list. Uh, so you just get the news and stuff like that. Um, I think we're fairly easy to unsubscribe for if you, if I think just a, a certain, um, button you push unsubscribe. And I think some people do it, they don't realize it really does, um, get them out of everything. How about getting anything? Well, you unsubscribe. <laughs> Maybe you thought you just didn't want that, but it, it, you basically took yourself out of circulation. All right. So we are in Revelation. We're doing uh, two new, two more churches today, and uh, they are um, church in Thyatira and uh, church in Sardis. Uh, then we'll do two more. But what I want to. We, we should be aware of with this is that, um, again, the setting that Revelation is presenting the church as the. Um, Fulfillment of it is as the inheritor of the promises of the covenant in Christ was fulfilled, and they are something squeaking. What is that? I think it's on the. Oh, it's here. Okay. I wonder if I wonder if. Um, let me check something out here. Get up, dude. That doesn't help us um so um and it's also in the context really of um the, the framework of this is the framework of worship and one thing that, that that's it becomes apparent the more time you spend in it so that it, it is that, in in terms of a of a of of, it's very much like the liturgy of of the eucharist on sunday in the sense that chapter one jesus was revealed you know to john at the vision but but chapters two and three are prophetic messages to the churches which we might call a sort of liturgy of the word and then we're going to get um when we get to um, chapter four you can look ahead of chapter four um, in verse one uh, john's gonna look and behold uh the door standing open to heaven the first voice heard a trumpet speaking come up here and john comes up into the heavenly uh place and he sees the realities um among which he sees is the church seated there um, So it's a lot like when we begin the second part of liturgy. We say, "Lift up your hearts." We lift them up, and the Lord, we're coming up here, and the, and the scene of worship is exactly the same scene as Revelation. The church is seated in heavenly places with Christ, and what we're doing is recognizing what we're we're, um, ent- we're we're entering into our status in that place, um, and. The other thing to, to, to bear in mind about Revelation, because we've talked about this being primarily but not exclusively about the judgment that's going to come on Israel in AD seventy, who when we get there will we'll discuss why first century Israel fits the image of the what was going to be called the Horror of Babylon, but we'll tie it into some Old Testament passages that kind of make it escapable and clear. But one of the things we get, though, here in the message to the churches is the church is being warned about these very same things. And what's happening with the old covenant people is they, they, the, the Jesus, the son of God came as, you know, John was the last technical prophet, but Jesus was the son of God, the prophet who said, repent, and they didn't. So their last opportunity to do these things is over but now the New Testament, the New Covenant people, the church, the seven churches, which are symbolic of the whole church, but are also churches, um, hearing the word of God also are given a prophetic message. And so it's like, hey, and, and it's interesting that how much of the warning is, for example, the warning uh, like we get today about Jezebel, who was, you know, an unfaithful woman much like Israel later in Revelation. So there's a warning to the church, you know, not, not you know, about these very same things. The temptations don't change. The other thing we should be aware of is that these, the the, the Old Testament references here are kind of um, touring us through the Old Testament in the sense that in the first letter to the Ephesians, Jesus said, you've left your first love. And there's the sense that Israel had this early, you know, relationship with God, which it could be departed. Then we had the, the, the analogy of, of Balaam and Balak, which is a late wilderness analogy. And now in the churches today with Jezebel, we're going to be in the promised land, in the covenant analogies. So, and, and it's situating... The message to the churches firmly in the narrative of Israel, so it's meant the church now is God's people, and it's being warned in the language of the covenant throughout that you know don't do this because there'll be there'll be judgment for it, as the Old Testament abundantly bears witness. The language of the old covenant. Well, it's using the. Um, the framework of the old, I mean, the warnings of the old covenant are being now moved forward and applied to the new covenant people. So, for example, the, the main temptation, and this is where all of us need to do some work of translation, you know, for example, so we're going to get Jezebel today. We'll get to it. We'll go and just jump in, look at it. But, you know, Jezebel was um, a princess of Tyre. Who King Ahab of Israel, the Northern Kingdom, married, and she was a um, probably a priestess of the Baal cult. And so what happens when you marry a princess um, in a foreign country, this was Solomon's downfall, as we discussed when we read through this stuff, is that he he loved many foreign women, or actually the King James is great, loved many strange women. Um, but the foreign women what meant was that you you he by, for political alliance he'd marry a princess from another country but the deal was that when you brought her to your palace you had to set up the shrine to her god and that was really where solomon began to 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 to, to fail and it, it's early on because he he always alliances and, oh yeah and then so he he began to compromise like that so Ahab and Mary Jezebel, she came in, Baal cult, you know, took over the north. And um, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha are largely caught up in combating the Baal cult in the north and its aftermath in Jezebel because, because in each Uh, In the Old Covenant, um, each kingdom, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, had one really bad king that sealed the fate. In the north, it was Ahab and Jezebel, who just, even though um, at the end of it, they kind of got, you know, judged, it just established. And then in the southern kingdom was a king called Manasseh, who... um, a lot of and, and that's what led to judgment so so his situating these messages in the narrative of israel lets us know that this is the spirit speaking to god's covenant people the same temptations and so what we get in these asia minor cities of course is not quite the same situation at all if they're not in the promised land they're in a pagan city and the main threat are various idol temples And the the arrangement that you had, in each city had its own unique version of this, of the seven cities of Asia Minor, but all of them had some local pagan cult, or multiple pagan cults and temples. It was part of the very fabric of the life. It's not like we think, oh, some pagan cult that you're going to sneak off to. It was trade guilds met in these temples, and it was just kind of expected that you'd not a nominal, uh, pagan would go and he wouldn't like necessarily be fully into it. But yeah, of course I'll give my offering like a nominal Christian on, on, you know, Easter. I'll come and, and do it. But, but so it was expected you'd go and there are things that are associated with it. Two things in particular that they significant New Testament, um, offering meat sacrifice to idols. So you had a meat offered to the idol and then you had a meal. That's the basic framework of a sacrificial of a of a festive meal in a in a cult of religion is you offer something to God, then you feast on it. That's still Eucharistically what we're doing. Taking the creation symbolized by bread and wine, offering it to God, receiving it back with that blessing and consecration so that it becomes communion with God and we feast on the sacrifice. Well that's always even the Old Testament when they offered the sacrifice at the temple. Various people got to partake of it, except the part that was wholly consumed by God. So one issue here is is that is that how Christians deal with that. You're a tradesman. Okay, the guild's meeting here. Hey, we're having lunch. What do you do? Um, and then the other thing is is the the subtle immorality, not subtle, but most of these pagan cults had temple prostitutes and that kind of uh, participation in that was just part of pagan worship one a real big deal. So but by these analogies, John is likening Jezebel, who brought the Baal cult in, to people in this city that that were going to the temple and saying this is okay. And we always have to do this work of translation, but let's translate it now into our day, We're neither in Old Testament Israel nor in pagan Asia Minor, we're in 21st century America, where the idols are not in a temple, but they're idols of, of pleasure and convenience and economics. What makes those idols? Whenever you allow one of those values to trump, Duty to God, you you that and and we're tempted to do all the time. I mean, sexual immorality is going to be a big part of the thing here. We have to understand what sexual immorality here. When he mentions it, it has both a probably real but highly symbolic meaning. That whenever God's people. Make compromises of their belief in God for the purpose of getting along in the world is considered to be adultery by God. So it doesn't always mean that everybody who's, who's committing fornication is literally going to the temple, although it's probably likely for some Christians who are doing that. It was more just the sense of saying, yeah, it's no big deal, it's all okay. So the, the thing for us in the church today, which is increasingly an issue is, well, how much do we participate in pagan culture? And certainly sexual immorality is right there at the top. Well, that's what everyone's doing, it's just the way it is. You have to get along, and it's like, no. The people of God have never said that's okay. There's always an ever been one standard, faithfulness within marriage and absence outside of marriage. Period. But that's our world has decayed to the point where oh yeah. You know and and uh, uh and and in the struggle to live the christian life christians wrestle with these things in the world and sometimes stumble and fall the moral struggle with obedience is a different issue than saying there's no moral struggle in other words this is what god wants we may have trouble doing what god wants but let's make a mistake about what it is that god wants and and the error is is when we start saying, well, we make accommodations, okay, it's all right, no big deal. And that's the death of the church in our time. Why does it have no witness of power? Because it's we, we tend to accommodate. And this is why I think you know a lot of the reorientation of our ministry is about cultivation cultivating, you know, a deeper committed faith. And, and not trying to market it to everyone to come but to say hey you come and you if but this is what we're doing we're not doing that and if you're here you're not there and that's so that's that's how that translates over but the but the what we should get from these these letters is the the stark and uncompromising prophetic message translates right down through the years in a, in a positive and a negative way he's going to say, I know your works, I see your labor, I see what you're doing. So when you feel like you're all alone, you know, no, no one um, is aware of the small sacrifice you're making, God does it. All right, well, let's jump in now and read uh, the letters and, and talk about them a little bit. Fans just kind of both changes all over the place. But, um, so um, verse 18 of chapter 2, we'll start. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, these are images that are taken from chapter 1 when we first saw him. Um, verse 14 of chapter 1. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as those eyes like a flame of fire. I gave a, 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 a reference when you're reading that chapter to um, Daniel, chapter 10. There's an image of Daniel's eyes like a flame of fire. But what what does that mean, just to read it? What, 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 what do eyes do, see, and what does fire indicate? Unseeing the way, burning away, cleansing, piercing, all those things. So, to deal with the symbolism of revelation, we have to just, it, it's not that, it really isn't that hard to unpack it. Okay, he has eyes, and someone looks at you with fiery eyes, you're going, oh, I, and so it'll say, I see. And the eyes, the, the gaze purifies. And, and it, it uh, so his eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass huh what's with the theme um, I th- well, well let's think about that like Shines. like like fine grass Shines. i mean you know fine grass is really shiny shiny um is it pretty solid yeah so there's a fir- it's firmly rooted here i am it's 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 heavy. Yeah. heavy it's weight glorious yeah. firmly rooted I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. So there's some good things here. And as for your works to last for more than the first, you remember what he said to the Ephesians in the first letter? huh? You've left your first love. So this letter is getting, this church is saying, no, you're, you're doing more now than you used to, so this is kind of this is uh, um, th- this is a positive, and, and they're persevering and they're loving, and they're doing more. Nevertheless, there's always the but. You're always <laughs> waiting in Revelation for you know when someone's got. Oh, I to talk to you about some. Hey, really like what you're doing, yeah. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, bye. <laughs> and it, it is, it, it, it interesting. It is kind of that sandwich deal. There is this like, hey, I know you're good stuff. Okay, now here, and hey, but you overcome. There's some good things. <laughs> so the, the the risen glorified Christ does seem to follow the sort of sandwich deal, you know, beginning ending with compliment or the positive thing. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, there's a lot of levels on which we, you know, so when you read commentaries, because it's symbolic and it's partly real, it's hard to really exact who is this woman. Um, it seems like, just reading it's probably a woman in the church who has a, a spiritual standing, who claims to speak for God, but is advocating some of this compromise, like it's no big deal. And the church is tolerating it. Now this is interesting because this is one of the biggest issues we run into in our time, is this idea of tolerance. And and, and, and and tolerating um, things. And so we should be, be so Jesus is, you um, allow that woman, you, you're, you're tolerating her. Um, so a few things we should highlight about that. Um, first of all, she is in the church. This is not Jesus saying, you're not yelling enough at the pagans. This is being tolerated in the church. So in terms of, of toleration, our, inter- our interior policy, the way we hold each other accountable in love it within the church, both with gentleness but with love and firmness, is different than our foreign policy to those who are outside. Outside, We're, we're ambassadors for Christ and we're not saying this is all great and right and good, but it's not our, it's not the church's job to, to reform. It's, it's, it's to be a witness and that witness, this is the paradox of that witness. Its internal life must be devoted. Then it strengthens the witness. And this is like a philosophy of our ministry. Why we focus so much on spiritual formation is that. Unless we, in the interior life of the members of the church, growing in that in their own um, faith, repentance, faith, virtue, is what makes the witness of the church to the world significant. And when we don't do that, when we're not focusing on our own growth in these things, The witness of the church becomes mere marketing. Hey, come to the store here, come to the show. Yeah. So what Rob said for those online is is that the idea of the grace here is, is the witness to those outside, which is which is different than to how we interact inside. And and, when, and, and I want to say something about interacting inside the church because um, I don't think the the, the the risen and glorified Christ is is advocating that every time we see someone in the church doing something we think is wrong, we go you know dress them down for it. Um, uh, it, it's it's the, the, always the concern, though, and this is if we really have, if we grow in our in, in love, and this is what Lent really is about, purifying the motives, because we all have mixed motives. Uh, admit that, and then you can realize, okay, I'm trying, so that when we, like we see somebody doing something, and part of this is concern for them, and part of this is like, how do they get to do that? Now, you know, all kinds of other mixed things, you have to purify the motive, but the real motive is, This is not going to work out well for a person, and it's also not good for the church. So, like, the the, the way, and this is where it gets sort of to the Matthew chapter 18 kind of thing, to see someone doing something, let's get a cup of coffee, what's going on? I don't think that's going to work out. And And then if they become, you know, people are defiantly, no, I'm then you have to make it a bigger deal that's kind of what over the course i, don't have, I haven't had a lot of those situations over 35 years that's some. i just said it's going on people say yeah it is going on i'd say you can't take community until so you stop it most people respond Are very yeah it doesn't happen very often say. it's usually someone i mean again within the middle we, we i think we talk to each other pretty openly and. So it's just not a regular thing. It's just from time to time something creeps up where it's enough. And and the, the kind of way we go about this, a lot of people visit church and come through. And uh, I don't think it's our job to investigate what everyone's doing before they came. It's but knowledge is responsibility. So When you know, then you then you feel then you almost have to. Uh, uh, so there's there's just that. But it's always in love. We want. We, we care about someone, but 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 and and the other thing about it is that it's not just an individual thing. That each of our pursuit of holiness, each, each of our ways we pursue holiness, is for the good of the body. And when we abdicate from that pursuit, the body is weakened, just like when you're, you break your arm or something so it's one of the fallacies of the modern western world that we're isolated individuals and what you do is all just you it's never all just you and morality has never been individual it's always been a communal reality what you do affects everybody around you and and to proclaim that you have a right to do whatever you want to do in the matter that's that's a modern view foreign to the scriptures and 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 we have to renew that and, and 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 so this is why i mean i've always thought about that in ministry you know so it's like i don't feel like i i can do you know, certain things i don't want to do that to people now we're responsible to people and so so there there's that so um but your 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 last uh works are more than the first. Now they tolerate the woman at Jezebel. Paul's a prophet is somebody is is encouraging people in the church in Thyatira to participate or, or saying it's okay in some way to 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 do this thing that in, in the pagan temple that involves some kind of compromise. Um, to, do, to commit sexual immorality, eating, sacrifice to idols, the two foundational components of, temp, of pagan temple worship. Somehow she's saying that that's okay. God understands Jesus is Lord of all, even of this version of St. Paul or something, you know, your sins are forgiven, so it doesn't matter what you do. Verse um, twenty-one. Then um, now, before I get uh, uh, the old the Jezebel story, I gave you some verses on that. It's a very long story with a lot of different chapters in it. Um, but if, if if you can look at certain of the chapters or certain of the verses, um, like I just read. Uh, Yeah, she doesn't her end is not a good one. She she um uh, in um so in first 1 Kings sixteen thirty one uh, it says, it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And Jeroboam, the sons of, uh, this is the, north. Uh, to, to situate you back in the northern kingdom. That's where Jezebel is. The northern kingdom of Israel. Just a brief summary. Israel was one kingdom under kings Saul, David, and Solomon. When Solomon died, his son, uh, people rebelled against him, and from, the, from about 931 B.C. on, there were two kingdoms, a northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria and a southern kingdom called Judah with its capital at Jerusalem. And they have two separate king lists, so if you read the Book of Kings, you'll see them overlapping like that. So Ahab is a northern king, and the complaint against Jeroboam here is that when he was the first king who rebelled against Solomon's son Rehoboam, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the the, the kings after Solomon. The trivia question is, what do they have in common? Both champagne. champagne bottles. You get a Rehoboam and a Jeroboam of champagne. Um, but what he did is, when he, when God actually prophetically gave him the Northern Kingdom because it was a judgment on Solomon's son, but, but what Jeroboam did is said, well, we got this kingdom now, but the temples at Jerusalem, and if, if, if we let people go to the temple in Jerusalem, their, their hearts be taken away from us, so we put up two idol shrines, one in the south of the Northern Kingdom, uh, at Bethel, and one in, in the north at, at Dan. And, to, to, and when it says that the kings walked in the sins of Jeroboam, it means they worked at those idol shrines rather than in the temple. So, so Ahab did that, but then it came to pass that he took as wife Jezebel, the son, the daughter of Ethbal, Ethbaal, which would be the name Baal in the king's name, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And they have made a woman image, and Nahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings were before him. And then it says um, in, in verse 20, 1 Kings 21-25, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And so that's the um, that's where this is being situated in 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 the biblical story is is there are some in um, if if the church uh allows this woman whom God has is calling Jezebel to continue to do this. This is the likeness of it. Now, just to, to close the narrative on Jezebel, um, the prophecy about Jezebel was that there she wouldn't. Uh, the dogs would lick her blood in the streets, and there wouldn't be any place she wouldn't be buried because her remains would be destroyed, um, and, and and so it would be any grave where someone says here's Jezebel. And it was it was done by uh, a, a, a king named Jehu, and it's it's a scene out of a western almost. Okay. He comes into town and, "Who's for me?" and and Jezebel, you know, and, and they and someone, "We're for you." And they took Jezebel and threw her out the window, and she tumbled down on the um, on the sidewalk and died. And and Jehu, at, at my image of this is he goes into the saloon to get a drink, and there it comes out the dogs who already mostly eat. That was her end. Did she fall into the garden plot of the guy that they, they took his... Yes. Ahab's bird's desert garden. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, yeah. There, there was that. Yes. There was that aspect of it too. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> So. Um, so that's, that's what's being, this is being likened to and, and there for us, therefore is, yeah, we can't. It's not okay to say that it's okay to compromise. He did not even get the opportunity to be married in the third. The so verse 21, well, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. So there's always an opportunity to repent. God is always slow in in enacting his judgment because he gives people full time to, to either repent or to harden in their unbelief. We see that in, um, we're reading a morning prayer now, the story of uh, Pharaoh and, you know, uh, the exodus, you know, why, why isn't God just go you know, I'm, I'm taking my people, I'm just going to knock you over. It's like, no, okay, let me people go. No, okay, well, let me just give you a little dose think about it more a little more dose okay finally we're done and um that's the patience so we should always understand that god's patience is not the same as you know saying it's okay it's patience to give us a chance to repent but she is not repented so verse 22 and you will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her in the Great Tribulation. And the sick bed is kind of a play. If she's counseling immorality, you know, going to bed, she'll get a different kind of bed as her um, consequence. And, and uh, those who commit adultery with her in the Great Tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And it will kill her children with death. It, it's like almost a pestilence. Is that that's sort of the idea? Because uh, it's almost redundant. You can kill them with death. How else do you kill them? Um, <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of like the the, the plague, of a pestilence. That and all the churches shall know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts, eyes of a flame of fire. I see. I, I, I see deep inside. And I give to each one according to you to your, each one of you according to your works. what's that her children are those these are spiritual languages is that their children are those who follow her in the church um just i mean we always must understand in the new testament that language of family is, is almost invariably applied to the, to the people of God. Uh, when John says "my little children," he doesn't mean he's their biological father. Um, uh, when he calls the, the um, in First Saint John the, the, the church the elect lady, this is this is the church is is the mother who gives birth to children. So Jezebel is an unfaithful woman who also gives birth to children who are going to be judged, just as the church gives birth to children who are going to be saved from judgment. But he says, now I say to you and, and to the rest in Thyatira who do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. and. That's another cryptic line, depths of Satan. Nobody knows exactly what it means. But it, it probably had to do with the idea that this woman claimed some special esoteric knowledge that said, yeah, we have this insight, this secret. We know this is okay. I will put no other burden on you. It's interesting, no other burden on you. Um, we read this last time, I don't want to turn there, mainly because I, I can't turn pages of the fan <laughs> going here, I can figure that out. But um, in Acts, when the early church gathered in Acts 15 to discuss what was the policy towards Gentile churches, Gentiles coming into the church, do they need to be circumcised? The verdict was no, but what do they need to do? They needed to abstain from things strangled things sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality and they said we're not going to put any of the burden on you so so this language is echoing the verdict of acts 15 here that this woman is advocating participating in things sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality the very thing the church said that you're not going to do and jesus is reiterating that i really meant that the holy spirit really meant that but I'll put no other burden on you. Uh, Hold fast what you have till I come. And what's interesting here is, whereas the Ephesian church, that where they left their first love, the threat was your whole church is gonna go. Here, there's a clear distinction between a part of this church is going to be judged, but those who are not participating in that are, 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 are going to, are, God knows them, those what they're doing, and, you know, keep yourself from that, and, and you'll, um, you, you, you won't experience the judgment this woman Jezebel's going to experience. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, what are his works? What are they characterized by? The will of his father? What's that? The will of his father. Yeah, but I mean the church so what it does it look like in the community of the church to keep his works until he comes? That mean, love. love God and love Sorry. others. So I I, th- I think it's it's I think he means, you know, you know he, remember go back to oh, the yeah. to the beginning nineteen. I know your works, love, service, faith, patience. So love for God manifested in love for the brethren, um, patience, faith, all those things, keep keep doing those things. And one of the things that's highlighted here, because sometimes that doesn't seem very exciting, patiently enduring in the right things. But what we're getting is Jesus sees that. And it's like, remember the parables Jesus told, you know, who is that wise and faithful servant? It's the one whom the Lord finds so doing when he comes. What doing what? Doing what he's supposed to be doing. But it's always a temptation to become discontented and looking for something else. And that's what leads into, uh, into that's the temptation, discouragement or something like that. Keep my works to the end. I will give him power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. They should be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. Because I have also received my father. Now give him the morning star. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this is um, Psalm two is a very important psalm um, because. Uh, it's, it's a Messianic psalm, but what's interesting here is um, in Psalm 2 is that Psalm 2 says, um, it's, it's a, uh, some of this comes up at, at Christmas because um, in verse 7 of Psalm 2, I, it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, your inheritance, and the ends of the world for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The idea here is that sin on the part of rebellious humanity is rebellion against God. And here's the king who's going to come and crush the rebellion. Jesus. And what was um, unusual about the way he's crushing the rebellion is that he began with it on the cross. By the conquering of sin itself and death. And then offering that conquest of sin and death to all who will believe in Him. But since that's the proclamation to the world, therefore those who will not repent and believe in Him have the other thing. That that's the that's the crushing and Peter's piece of like a potter's vessel. So you'll conquer um, you'll conquer the world, and we should re, we should um, read this. In terms of Genesis and the, 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 the original mandate to Adam, have dominion over the birds of the air and the uh, land, the, the, the fish in the sea, um, and is also where um, it comes that Philippian line that comes from Isaiah. Uh, the Lord is exalted and given a name which is above every other name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, the things in heaven, the things in the earth, and things under the earth, which is the threefold division of creation. So this is what he's saying. This ties into that. What's unique about Revelation here, though, is that he says, I'll give those who overcome, I'll give you that, that you will over the nations. And this is, but this is not, um, Mysterious in Revelation because in Revelation chapter one, verse seven, what did, how how was the church described? It was um, it was called a kingdom of priests, kings rule. and when we get to Revelation four, we see the church in the heavenly place, they're going to be sitting on thrones wearing crowns. So this is the idea that the church shares in the rule of Christ and will conquer the world. And part of the um, framework of Revelation is how does that conquest happen Um, through prayer and faithful witness because when the church offer, is faithful in his prayer this is exactly what's going to happen in Revelation we get to chapter 4 and 5 there's going to be golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints when the judgments come those bowls are thrown down and the the, 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 the church will be vindicated in the face of her adversaries and who will be vindicated? Those who who are faithful in prayer and then faithful in witness, because faithful witnesses—that's whom God vindicates. Jesus is the faithful witness, and because He and God vindicates Him by judging those who judged Him. So the same dynamic happens with the church. We're called to be faithful, and God will judge for us. Um, the temptation is to—and this this is where the vocation of 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 perseverance and suffering comes in because the temptation is to respond to the evil of the world in kind to enter into its means of influencing things but that's never the biblical way but we do that we're tempted to do that because god takes too much time but his judgments are coming he sees what we're doing you're going to have this this verdict if we continue in the works He gave us to do. That's the promise to the church. And I'll give him the morning star. There's a, a um, prophecy in Numbers twenty four seventeen that a star will rise in Jacob, in, in First Peter that the day star will rise in our hearts. And uh, the morning star is, is light, brightness in in what appears to be the darkness. Because this is, this is a, you know, these are not great places to be Christians. That we think, oh, it's so tough. It's like, not compared to what was being faced by these churches. In Asia. We're not as as tough as we used to be. We need to learn to be, that's uh, something. So, you has years to hear, let him hear, because. The risen Christ has spoken, and now it will be. This is the power of the word of God. It What he says happens. Right, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What were the seven stars? Churches. The angels of the seven churches. What were the churches? Lampstand, the candlesticks were the same. Seven spirits of God are the spirit before the throne, which is an image of the Holy Spirit in its fullness. the angels of the seven churches, the messengers to the churches. Uh, and he says in, in chapter three, verse one, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? That's the star that that, that the risen Christ holds in his hand. Most likely the bishop of the local church who's gonna deliver this message to the to the church. So he's like, I'm holding you in my hand, which means you have a responsibility I know your words, that you have a name; that you are alive, but you are dead. So, what would that mean? They're kind of rich, but inwardly they're dead. Yeah. What? What? What other thoughts? outwardly an outward outwardly appearance without an outward appearance so body. so what would that mean in fact in fact if we say it's an outward appearance lack like, in your red what is what is the what does the appearance look like why does it look alive a whited sepulchre well the, well a thriving church? but it seems like um, that there's some of that, that that it's the outward thing is hiding something but um, of course the sepulchre even if it's white, it's still a sepulcher. What is it that what 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 would this kind of church look like? They were kind of like a growing kind of church on the outside. A prospering church, maybe socially popular church, yeah. active, lots of things going on, but um, in that in that visible excitement and popularity, losing. The essence of the faith, which is repentance and faith in Jesus. Yeah, I want to be careful not to, you know, not to, not to throw any um, stones, because I, I think this is a message for us all to to ingest. But there is a reality in our culture that sometimes we value. Hey, how are things going? Oh, church growing? Yeah, it's going great. And and that's the kind of thing that, that this message would say, yeah, you look alive, you're growing, but you're dead. Because what would that mean? Well, because this is the subtle thing I've actually um, witnessed over my years of ministry, um, sort of the trajectory of cultural um, movements. But the evangelical message, when I first went into ministry in the early 80s, of on the heels you know the late billy graham era but when you heard a preacher preach back then it was usually um there's a guy on the radio here a guy named walter martin who used to talk about this guy he was episcopalian until he went to church and found out what they believed became baptist but um <laughs> but it was always um this um call to repentance the highlighting of the separation of people from god the call to sincere repentance and faith in the person of Jesus. And that is what um, I think that evangelical message was 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 a renewing phenomenon in a mainline Christian culture mid-20th century that was that had an appearance of being alive but was dead. That is it's all popular, it's all great, but but so any appearance of like this bunch of stuff's going on where people are not really repenting and believing in Jesus avoiding that real issue of separation and devotion, instead just getting involved in activities. And that's easy to do in church, to get caught up in the in the what we're gonna do and not think about well where, so where's your faith? And this is one reason that I, I think that to, to, to Jack's point about the program, I, I think there is a point there that you know a lot of what we do as a church, our works should really flow out of our prayer and faith and giftedness. And so, so, in other words, as we live our life in prayer together and, and we experience God's grace, there, there should be an agenda moving to go, oh yeah, I feel called to do this. And then as each, you know, the, the members of the church have certain gifts and callings, then we support that. And so that becomes a, a natural outgrowth of the faith I'm experiencing. Versus, okay, we're all going to do this thing, and yeah, we well, got we got a hundred people to go feed the homeless, and whatever it is, we can we can put a a poster on or a, a number on to say what a great thing we did. I, that's dangerous. That, and that's that's always been a cultural thing where you want to say, let's advertise what we're doing. It's like. I don't think one of my left hand knows my right hand's doing, because I don't want to receive the reward in that. It doesn't mean you can't publicize let people know what you're doing. But I mean, it's, it's a, there's a slope there. There's a, there's a danger of falling into the appearance of doing things, and we can't skip the step of, of faith. So what we do must be a sharing of the love of Jesus that we are experiencing not a mere good work on a merely cultural level be we'll be oh yeah look at all the good that church is doing and that's like i i, I had this historically you know where people would say you know what's your church doing for people and they want a list of programs that we've offered so our church is calling is trying to call people to repentance and faith and growth in christ and that's what the church offers the fruit of that will be good works that are witnesses to that faith, but what it does in a worldly sense, and this is why I think the whole idea of reading C.S. Lewis on this excerpt and quote, but the idea that our goal is to make the world a better place, no, it's not. It's to bear faithful witness. That faithful witness might be completely rejected and crushed, and that's still faithful. The minute we have a goal in the world of accomplishing something, And that's our goal. That's when you start saying we we get out of that rootedness and faith. So I think that's the kind of things that we're talking here. I know your works. You have the that You were alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. The things that remain watchful. Um. It's a spiritual concept, watchfulness, where the idea in our prayer to be aware of what's really going on. When we're not watchful, we're, we're sort of operating in a kind of ignorance of the spiritual reality that undergird what we're actually doing. So watchful for our motives watchful for temptations watchful for you know whether we're really you know, understanding or purifying our own motives and not being con- concerned with with what things look like outwardly but what our motive is inwardly and it's a, if it's a genuine witness of love that's what The things which remain, this is an interesting thing because this is really um, what we can think of as sacramentality. What do I mean by that? I mean that in as much as we do things in the world that uh, bear witness to the Kingdom of God in a real way, there's an eternal dimension to that, and that work endures or remains. To the extent that we do things in the world that that, that, that really don't have that dimension, they aren't, they're just the thing it is, and it may look good, but it's just going to crumble. So. sacramentality is to is to do things in the world as signs of faith and the presence of christ not as ends in and of themselves remember therefore how you have received and heard hold fast and repent therefore if you will not watch i will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. What's interesting about that is that um, this, this harkens directly. I gave a passage in Matthew um, about um, coming as a thief, uh, 24, 42 through 44. Um, you know, watch, you you're not when another ha- ma- master's house comes at even or at midnight in the morning at a cock crowing, What's interesting, this is the sense of coming that, that it, in, in forms revelation, because a lot of times people are thinking about the second coming. He's saying, if you won't watch, I'll come upon you as a thief. This suggests that there's a way that Christ comes in judgment to people in churches before the second coming. So the watchfulness is not just, hey, watch out because he might be coming again in glory any moment but watch out, be aware of what's going on in your life, lest you stumble into judgment because you're not watching. And this is the basic point of the life of prayer. Remain connected to God and aware and watchful and living that life in Him, not getting distracted into other things. Verse 4, Yet I have a few names, yet you have even a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The white garments, I, I mentioned, I uh, gave the reference to the story of the, of, um, the great feast, where um, at the end of the story, the king came in to see the guests and saw a man didn't have a wedding garment on. We have that for gospel during the year. He said, "Friend, why would you come in here with a wedding garment?" He was speechless. He bound him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, so the story goes. Um, and throughout Re- throughout Revelation, the same thing uh, is: he was granted them to be clothed in white garments, clean and bright. And it says in Revelation later on for the 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 the, the, the garments of the righteous deeds of the saints the righteous works which bear witness to the interior transformation, not a bunch of things we do busily that are unrelated to faith. So, he'll he'll, he'll grant us to be clothed in white. That means we'll be in the wedding feast. And that's the idea of the wedding feast is that you have to wear the garment given by the bridegroom to be admitted to the feast. can't come with your own thing. Harkens a little bit back to um, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve clothed themselves with figs, kind of inadequate. God clothed them with his garment, and their sin was covered provisionally. And this really, neat, this really re- refers to the um, sincerity of repentance and faith of interior transformation, which bears, of which the good we do bears witness. He who overcomes shall be, quote, I will not blot out his name from the Book of Life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The Book of Life has, um, I gave a lot of references for that. Daniel 12.1 talks about the, book, the books were open. At the end of Revelation, we'll get to it, it talks about. That the dead were judged, but was written in the books. And if anyone was not found, written the book of life. So you really want to be in that book. I don't want to be erased. Yeah, book. That's a, there's a prayer for that. I think that David has in the Psalm. Don't But don't take my name out of the book. So it's really the contrast here in this church between the outward appearance of things which seems good now and the inward reality of things or repentance and faith that Christ sees that, that has this that genuine, um, is, is authentic faith. This, um, to some degree, I think that in the history of Israel um, would be symbolized by the um, the kind of prosperity that causes them to forget God. It all looks great, but God's no longer in it. That's a, a continuing temptation for us in our culture where we're surrounded by so many Things that distract us from. What's that? Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace and forevermore. We will meet Monday Thursday we will study um the uh remaining two letters to the church